Men, you may be seated. Please take your Bibles and turn to our scripture reading, 1 Timothy 5. We're going to read the first 16 verses where Paul addresses uh, Timothy. How are you so how are you to treat the different people in your church? How are you to relate to them? Uh, but we'll also see he, he spends most of his time in this passage dealing with a specific uh, group of people in the church, those who are widows. And we can learn much from his instruction to Timothy on the care uh, and the relationships in, this church, in his church. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household— he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Here we end the reading of God's Word. Let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we Look into this passage that you have given to us. You have inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words of wisdom and compassion uh, to us. And we pray now that you would give us light and understanding on how best we can apply these principles and these teachings this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So all through the New Testament, uh, we find the uh, relationship of God to his people and the relationships among the people of God often expressed in terms of family. We are taught to address God as our Father in heaven. Jesus is the only begotten Son, and we are adopted children of God. 
It was custom from the earliest times for Christians to address one another as brothers and sisters. Jesus actually says, do not call uh, anyone uh, a master, a rabbi, because you are, in fact, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. The church itself is called the bride of Christ. The relationships are founded on the love that the Father has for his children. And according to this passage, ministers are to treat the members of the church as family members with love, respect, gentleness, and purity. And so let's get into this passage then, and it starts off with a a kind of a general uh, instruction for Timothy and how he is to relate to the different people in the church. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now, it's interesting, our, our ESV translation simply uses the word rebuke. If the, we looked at the, the Greek language, we would see actually what it says is do not harshly rebuke. Do not harshly rebuke. It, it, it's, this, is, this is an application. I, I, I'm going to be kind of peeling back a layer of the onion every now and then in the course of this. What's behind this? What's behind this instruction? What, there's, a, there's an underlying principle. The underlying principle is that we treat each other the way God treats us. The pastor relates to his people, the people that God has placed under his care, as God has approached him. We forgive as we have been forgiven. We love as we have been loved. We show respect and honor and gentleness, even as God has dealt with us in these ways. So when Paul says, do not rebuke, harshly rebuke an older man, but rather encourage him as you would encourage a father. Dad, I am really disappointed in you. You really messed up this time, Dad, and I don't, I, I, it's going to take me a long time to get over this. Dad, something you did caused some hurt, but rather than condemn, let's work together and encourage each other to do what's right. You see the difference? You see the difference? Now, there may be times when we have to be more strict, more stern, more blunt, if you will, with one another, but this is in in general. This is the way we, we are we ought to be disposed to treat one another. And the same thing is true, not just for older men, but Paul says uh, uh, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as, as sisters in all purity. There is a way we treat our family members, or at least we should, in a healthy family situation. There is a way that, there is a way that shows gentleness, encouragement, it shows purity, and this is the way we conduct our relationships. It's true not just for older men, but for the younger men. You may relate to them a little differently. You're more their peers, uh, their equals, but you relate to them with that same uh, disposition of respect and gentleness and encouragement. Same thing with the younger women in the church. Treat them as your sister. 
the same thing with the older women as your church and in your church you you relate to the different age groups in slightly different ways but underneath the way that you relate to them there are these underlying principles of basic christian behavior modeled after jesus christ and the way he deals with us this is also where the pastor, in doing this, sets an example for the rest of the church and how they relate to each other. And we've read in previous sections how Paul says to Timothy, you are to set an example before the people in all godliness. In your way of life, you are showing them, not just verbally, but by actions, how this all works out, how it all plays out in real life how what we profess and what we believe and what we confess to be true and right actually lives is lived out in our lives. So Timothy is to provide an example and is to relate to the people of his church in this way. Well, let me look at some of the specifics that Paul says, and this is for all the different relationships that Timothy has. You are to be an encourager. Don't rebuke harshly, but encourage encourage them as you would a father. What does it mean to show encouragement or to be encouraging? I always like to break that word down, encouragement. Courage we often think of as bravery, but it really is the idea that we are committed to doing what is right and we approach what is right with, a, with a, an understanding that there may be consequences that aren't always pleasant but we nevertheless will do what is right. That's courage. See, people often say courage is, is an absence of fear. No. You can be afraid and courageous at the same time. Courageousness overcomes fear. We don't always know what our actions are going to, to lead to, but we do know that we should encourage one another to do what is right, to help each other along that path. Encouragement shows respect. It shows affection. It shows affection. It is not overbearing. And Peter warns officers in the church not to be overbearing. But what's his, what's his answer to over, being overbearing? He says, set an example. Set an example. Here's something, and I, I might be treading on uh, in areas where I do not have professional expertise, but I do have 40 years of observation. One of the things I, I observe about people is we need motivators. We need, and, and a motivator, literally, again, that term, when you break it down, a motivator gets us moving. A motivator propels us in a certain direction. In our world, we have different things that motivate us, and the Bible teaches that there are different things that motivate us, that get us moving, that provide direction in our lives, and, and so forth. Encouragement uses what I call positive motivation. Positive motivation. Let me illustrate. There are negative motivators. Anger is a negative motivator. Guilt is a negative motivator. They are sometimes useful. Sometimes useful. Jesus got angry. But he resolved the anger with action. Positive, actually positive action. 
When did Jesus get angry? When he went into the temple and saw what they were doing in the temple. My father's house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he took action. The anger actually propelled him to do what was right. Guilt is a negative motivator, and it has some use. We acknowledge our guilt in sin, and we have kind of a judicial guilt, sense of guilt, but we also have that internally felt guilt. When used properly, they motivate us to come to the cross of Christ, to confess our sins, to, uh, to uh, lead a godly life and reject what we have done and so forth. But there are also positive motivators, and I think the encourager will focus mainly on positive motivators. And I think they are much more long-term, much more long-term in their effect. Let me name some positive motivators that we use to encourage one another. Love is a positive motivation. Gratitude is a positive motivation. We talked about that as the third use of the law, teaching us how we should express our gratitude toward God. These are long-lasting, positive. We build on these things. Encouragement uses these positive motivators, which also show respect and gentleness in, as we teach uh, to one another about these things. These are biblical principles, but I think they're also healthy principles for life. Healthy principles for life and for relationships. Paul says that we, uh, uh, Timothy should love uh, younger men as brothers, and he uses that term uh, for which one of our cities on the East Coast is named. What is that? Philadelphia. Philadelphia was those of us who used to live in that area call it Philadelphia, but that's a different thing. Um, it's a big, dirty city, <laughs> right? But it was named; it had a good name, Philadelphia. And in in Greek, that is the kind of affection that we have for one another as brothers and sisters. A brotherly affection is another way of calling it: brotherly love, brotherly affection. And this is how we are to relate to those who are our peers, the younger men, younger women, and so forth. Just a, a couple of other verses in the Bible that talk about this. Romans 12, 9 through 11. Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What's our natural tendency? We want to honor ourselves, don't we? We want to set ourselves up to be honored by other people and, and lift ourselves up. It's a form of self-worship. It is a form of idolatry, but that is our natural tendency. What does Paul say? Outdo each other in showing honor. In showing honor. What's a, a principle underneath to get at? What did Jesus say about uh, giving and receiving? Is it more blessed to give than to receive? It is true, and we often think of material things. It is also more blessed to give honor than to receive honor. To give honor than to receive. Much more, much uh, better to praise others than to seek the praise of people yourself. 
Peter writes this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Bless. Notice that Peter mentions a whole complex, a whole group of of qualities that we should be building in our lives, that we should be striving for. They go together. They work. There's a synergy in these different uh, uh, qualities that we should be uh, building in our lives. When he talks about a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind, don't repay evil for evil, but bless, and we are to be blessed. We are going to be receiving or obtaining a blessing. Build that beautiful complex, that synergy complex of these qualities in your life. Now, Timothy, uh, Paul is telling Timothy that he should have brotherly affection. That's one of the elements of this. And he should treat the people in his church with that brotherly affection. He also mentions this, purity. He mentions purity, attaches it specifically to the way that he treats younger women in the church as sisters with all purity. And I want to uh, uh, just uh, elaborate just a little of on this. There should be purity in all of our relationships, meaning we conduct our relationships in accordance with the great principle to love one another to love one another, the second great commandment. But how do we define love? One of, the, one of the popular sayings today is you love who you love. As if love was ju- just self-existent, self-justifying, and self-directing. You love who you love. No, love is expressed according to the law of God. Because the law tells us how we are to love God and to love one another. When Paul says, in all purity, what he's really saying is your relationships need to be conducted. The actions that you do for to and for one another, there should be a purity in your actions. There should be a purity in your motives. Why you do these things. Not selfishness, not self-worship, but to serve God and to demonstrate love to God and love to your neighbor in obedience to his word. Our our culture does not want to understand that love has boundaries within which it works. And those boundaries are defined for us in moral precepts. No, you don't just love who you love. You love according to the will of God. That's what purity is. That's what purity is. Purity in action as we are taught God's will and purity in motive, as God writes his law on our hearts, not just in tablets of stone, not just in pages of the book, but on our hearts. That's purity. Okay, all of this is is kind of the first few verses here of this passage in 1 Timothy 5. But in verse 3, Paul focuses a spotlight on a special case special group of people in the church, and there is a special care to be given to this group of people. 
And logically, in fact, this special group of people are probably going to be, well, prominent. They will be the prominent group in the group that he's referred to before as the older women. The older women. And you are to relate to the older women as mothers. He talks about widows, the special case of widows. And he tells us that there are two categories, and one category needs to kind of go back and tend to business. The other category is a category that he calls, in some translations, widows indeed, or in our translation, truly widows. Uh, He's not saying that the others aren't widows, but these are widows who have no other support. There is no husband, obviously. There is no family. They are on their own. It's especially important to understand in this time in which Paul writes, the widow had no other hope. This widow, indeed, who had no other family members to rely on. Nothing. She was on her own, and her options were extremely limited extremely limited. They they did not have the same opportunities that many of us have today if we are on our own, even widows. However, Paul says that the, and he's in defining these widows indeed, these truly women who are truly widows, he kind of uh, takes us through this passage. It's not all in order. He seems to kind of bounce back and forth through the rest of this passage, talking about widows who are widows truly and widows who are younger and and, and not truly in this sense, not denying that they are widows, but they are not in the same category. And he he gives us the, the categories here. They have no one else in their families to take care of them. They are on their own. All family support has been taken away. He also says, though, these widows who are truly widows have led, up to this point, an exemplary life as wives and mothers and in service to the body of Christ. They have been hospitable. They have washed the feet of the saints. They have done all these things. They have led an exemplary life. They have dedicated themselves to pleasing God in all of their other relationships, Kind of interesting. He says they're not less than 60 years old, too. They are worthy of being enrolled as widows, worthy of support from the church. He talks about this, and this is kind of an interesting thing. He doesn't elaborate. We kind of have to read between the lines. He talks about enrolling them. He talks about putting them on a list. He implies that being on this list allows the church to minister to them and care for them, but they, in turn, are actually going to minister inside the church, too, in prayer and in works uh, and in, in dedicating the rest of their lives. As they are dependent on the church, they're going to dedicate the rest of their lives for uh, the glory of God, for the service of the church, and spend time in prayer. And this is their life. This is their life. Now, it seems, and again, we have to read between the lines, it seems that there is this this agreement. Yes, your name is is going to be put on this list. You're going to be approved of for help from the church. But in turn, you're going to continue to serve God in this way. 
as Paul mentions these things in this passage. I don't know that any church today does anything quite like this. And I I really think that there could be a case here that Paul is giving good advice and not, well, he does say command them to do this. So it might be more than just good advice. For a woman who meets these qualifications, she dedicates her remaining years to the service of the church and the service of God. She dedicates herself to prayer, and she is supported and cared for by the church. What about younger widows? Well, they don't meet the same qualifications. And Paul says this, they should marry and continue on as wife and mother in a family setting. They should marry, have children, do not give the enemy, the adversary, uh, an avenue to attack. They should not enter into this special relationship implied by enrolling them on the list of those who are truly widows. Why not? He says, and this is, this, you know, here again, we're seeing a difference of attitude between the Apostle Paul and the general attitude of our culture today. Let me just say this. We tend to extend compassion with no thought about the weaknesses of human nature. We extend compassion, but we do not sometimes use wisdom in the extension of that compassion. Many people today would read Paul's words here and see, that that seems kind of harsh. That seems kind of unfeeling, unsympathetic. No, Paul is saying, I know human nature, and I know what will happen if people are relieved of the obligation of their station, of their place in life, as husbands, as fathers, as wives, as mothers, and so forth. I know what temptations can come in when people do not have that disciplining role to play you don't think there's a discipline to being a father and a mother and a and a and a husband you don't think there's a discipline that is on us as we fulfill the roles of mothers and wives there is and paul seems to be saying without that discipline there are temptations that will come in and subvert the younger widow subvert the younger widow. If she is allowed to be on this list, her, her inclination is going to, get, is going to lead her to, to break that agreement, as it were, between herself and the church. That's what he means when he says they're, they're going to go astray, they're going to be led astray by their desires. They have these desires, and, they ought, and God has provided a righteous and good way for those desires to be expressed and met. And that's through marriage and raising a family and so forth. Again, notice how different these instructions are from our modern mindset of compassion without responsibility. And also feeding into our modern mindset is this growing sense that we have of entitlement. You owe me. 
you owe it to me. And Paul would reject that completely. Paul would reject that completely. If you are of an age where you can dedicate yourself to a family again, that's the direction your life should go. That doesn't seem very romantic, does it? There are no there's no violins playing off in the distance here. I felt no, you find a husband and raise a family. I'm not saying that that romantic idea of love is is not there. It is. But this is also where prayer comes in. Lord, lead me in the direction I should go. Provide for my needs and provide the opportunity again for me to be a wife and a mother. That is my calling. That is my, my I, oh, people today. My identity. No, my identity. I, I'm sorry. I'm going to contradict everything you hear in our modern world about me picking my identity. My identity as a creature made in God's image is determined for me by my creator. Deal with it. That doesn't sound very compassionate, but actually it is. Actually it is. There are a multitude of problems that develop when we step out of that line that God has determined for us. Finally, final point here. Paul makes this toward the end of the passage. Family first. Family has the first responsibility to take care of those who are in need. And he even uses language that seems to broaden it out beyond just widows, but also your parents, your, both your fathers and your mothers who are in need. Family is the first support group for the older people who are, uh, who are not fully able to care for themselves any longer. This is an application of the commandment, honor your father and your mother. This is how we actually put that into practice in a specific way. And Paul says if a widow has other family members, especially children or grandchildren, they should honor their mother or grandmother by caring for her, by caring for your parents. And he, he even uses the, the term that they are, to, they are to return back to their parents a part of that love and care that their parents have given to them. He also says there's a benefit to the family when this takes place. The benefit to the family is that they demonstrate godliness and the return of love. And in so doing, they are providing an example, again, to others. And they will, in, in their own family, receive the benefit of acting in this way. God sees and God rewards and God blesses. The benefit is that they demonstrate godliness and return the love and caring that their mother has given to them. This allows the church to handle the more difficult cases, the cases of the widows who are truly widows. And again, when there is no family, no other means of support, and when the widow is of an age where remarriage is likely then she is put on this list or in, this, in, in that setting in the first century church. She's put on this list. She is supported and cared for, but she also dedicates her life to the service of the church and of God and to prayer. 
This, to me, shows this balance of compassion and wisdom. This is something that we hope uh, men who are ordained to the office of deacon come to understand as well. They often are called on to be the church's emissaries, the church's ministers of compassion and mercy. We call it, we call the diaconate the ministry of, of mercy, but to use wisdom as well, understanding human nature, understanding how temptations can come in, understanding the weaknesses that we all have, and administering compassion in the light of those things. This is the balance of compassion and wisdom. I want to close with a, a somewhat parallel passage. It's taken from Paul's letter to Titus. You'll see parallels. It's not precisely parallel, but I think, again, Scripture helps us understand Scripture, and we build up uh, our understanding as we compare Scripture with Scriptures. From Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But as for you, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Okay, I want to just say, break in here and say something. Notice what Paul says to Titus here, that this teach what accords with sound doctrine. Our, our mindset, and this is especially true in Reformed churches, we are theologians, right? We love our theology, our sound doctrine. And we often put that sound doctrine in a little box over here as the theory, the theory, but then we have the practice. Notice what Paul, Paul does not have these separate boxes. He says, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine, and then he gives the practical. He, he, he goes immediately, he doesn't talk about the fine points of, of Calvin, well, Paul wouldn't call it Calvinism, would he? He would call it God's plan of salvation. Uh, he doesn't talk about the fine points. He talks about how we live and how we relate to each other, because let me tell you, brothers and sisters, good doctrine must result in good living. If it's not changing the way you live, it is not of use to you. In fact, doctrine that remains pure theory Gets, act, gets pretty stale pretty quickly. You do not want moldy doctrine hanging around in your brain. You need to put it to use in the way you live. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfast. For older men, this is how good doctrine is applied. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women, the young women, to love their husbands and children. Notice the emphasis on being an example and being a teacher in this, in this context. So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Notice that repetition of self-control. This is the third time it's been mentioned in this passage. Self-controlled, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Again, I say this is not precisely parallel, but there are 
connections between this passage in Titus 2 and our passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5. I would urge you sometime during this week to go back over these two passages and, and compare them and read them and meditate on them and draw insight with prayers that God would show us that balance between compassion and wisdom and how in our setting today we are to help those who have no other support. We are Christ's servants. We'd show Christ's mercy. We use Christ's wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would show us that balance of godly compassion and godly wisdom and teach us to truly show compassion for one another, truly uh, show the, the love of Christ in our relationships with each other. And we ask, Father, that you would bless this church as we apply the good, sound doctrine that you have given to us in your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.